podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. This is episode 22, and it has to deal with an event which occurred fairly recently, has been the top of the news. A lot of analysis has been carried out on the significance of this event for terrorism, internationally, regionally, locally, and some disagreement as to the importance of what actually happened. What I'm referring to, of course, is the death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of Islamic State, the terrorist group in Iraq and Syria, a terrorist group that had claimed it had created a caliphate in Iraq and Syria in 2014. We all know the Islamic State was one of the most heinous terrorist groups in recent memory, responsible for massacres, for mass rapes, for truly horrendous crimes against humanity. And so there was a manhunt for al-Baghdadi. As I said, he took over in 2014 as the so-called self-styled caliph, although he'd been an extremist for the better part of a decade and a half in Iraq after the invasion by the Americans in 2003. So the Americans obviously wanted uh, to find him and uh, either bring him to justice or kill him. And so thanks to, in part, a $25 million bounty on his head and assistance by Kurdish intelligence forces, yes, the same Kurds that President Trump has essentially abandoned, U.S. Special Forces located him last weekend. They had cornered him, and when the Special Forces tried to apprehend him, he committed suicide. He was wearing a suicide vest and apparently killed three of his own children at the same time. So, uh, his DNA has been confirmed. It is him. He is now dead. Therefore, Islamic State is without a leader at the current time, although I've seen some intelligence, some information suggesting a number two has been promoted upon the death of a leader. I don't want to get into that that issue of whether or not the group is better off or worse off because Baghdadi is uh, no longer there and the quality of, of the successor is not that interesting to me, although I'll get back to that in a couple of minutes. What I want to look at today is the whole issue of whether or not the death of a terrorist leader represents, in fact, an important change in a terrorist group's success. Does the elimination through death, or whether he's killed or dies of natural causes or whatever, or is arrested, as we'll see in a few cases, does that actually mean anything? Is it that important to take out the head of a terrorist organization? I'm going to argue the answer is no. And this flies in the face of a lot of analysis I've seen in the past couple of days, which purports that with the death of Baghdadi, Islamic State is a much less dangerous organization, something that has lost some of its energy or lost some of its ability to inflict damage on the region and internationally. And I'm not sure I agree with that. And what I want to do in this podcast is to look at four examples in recent history, which seem to illustrate that the elimination of a terrorist leader is not necessarily the same as the elimination of the terrorist group. I think we have to be really careful here in making that kind of assessment. The first example I want to talk about is a group called the PKK, which is a Kurdish terrorist group, which has been around for quite some time. And in 1999, the leader of the PKK, a man called Abdullah Öcalan, was in fact arrested by Turkish intelligence forces with the support of the CIA. He was actually picked up in Nairobi, Kenya, not in eastern Turkey. He was tried and sentenced to death, although that was commuted to life in prison 
And in fact, he became the only prisoner on an island in the Sea of Marmara, where he has going to basically spend the rest of his life. Although he has had some freedom, he's written some books and done some other work while still in prison. But I guess the, the big question in this first case is, did the arrest of Erjolan, who was a very active and very important leader for the PKK, did it in fact make a difference in the organization's ability to strike? And the clear answer is no. The PKK has been extremely active in the 20 years since Ojalan's arrest. There seems to have been no decrease in the tempo of attacks or lethality of attacks. In fact, if you read the Turkish media, there are constantly stories of Turkish military forces disrupting, or what use the term neutralizing, PKK elements in the country. And in many ways, Turkey has used the continued action of the PKK in northern Iraq and Syria to justify their incursion into that area of the world a couple of weeks ago. They claim that the YPG, which is a force that was used to help fight Islamic State, is in fact a branch of the PKK, ergo a terrorist organization, whereas we here in the West would see them more as a very helpful bunch of Kurds with, uh, without whose assistance we would not have inflicted the kind of damage we have over Islamic State in the past five years. The, the Kurds have suffered tremendously in their battle with Islamic State, losing over 10,000 people. Uh, in fighting this terrorist group, and yet the Turks would see them as essentially the same as the PKK. So, bottom line is, Ojalan was arrested uh, more than 20 years ago. He's been in, basically in that prison since that time, and the organization is nowhere near the death knell that many had predicted at the time. Okay, here's the second example. There's a group in Peru, which goes by the name Sendero Luminoso, or Shining Path, it's a Marxist-Leninist group, and it was created in 1980 to overthrow the state using guerrilla warfare and, to and replacing it with what it calls a new democracy. I always have a hard time associating democracy with Marxist-Leninist, but, uh, but there's, there you go. The leader of the uh, Shining Path was a man called Abimael Guzman, and he was arrested in 1992 and has since uh, been uh, on a life sentence since that time. Interestingly, Shining Path, uh, its activities have certainly declined since the arrest of Guzman back in 1992, so that's, what, 27 years ago. But the group hasn't disappeared completely, and in fact, its most recent attack took place in 2017, when three so-called snipers for Shining Path killed three police officers. That was in March of 2017. So in the case of Shining Path, it is true that the arrest of Guzman, who was a, an effective leader, has had a significant impact on the tempo of Shining Path operations, but it has not eliminated the group entirely. Going over a list of attacks over the past 10 years or so, it looks like there's three or four attacks per year that have been attributed to Shining Path members. So the group has not disappeared completely, although it is not quite at the same strength or level of lethality or threat that it once posed to Peru. So we have a bit of a mixed bag in the case of Shining Path, less so in the case of the PKK. The third example I want to talk about is Al-Qaeda. We all remember where we were in May of 2011 when U.S. Special Forces finally located bin Laden, who had been living in the Pakistani city of Abbottabad for a number of years. The Special Forces descended on the compound. They found bin Laden. They killed him. They took his body, they buried it at sea, apparently according at a Muslim burial, out of respect for him. 
And there's one thing that none of us will ever forget, and that's the scene of celebration in the United States, a full, almost a full 10 years after 9-11. So obviously bin Laden was public enemy number one. The Americans really wanted to get at him, and they finally did. So again, a dead terrorist is a good terrorist. I remember at the time, a lot of analysts say, saying that this is truly the final notes in, in Al-Qaeda with the death of bin Laden, who was a very charismatic leader, a very influential man, was involved in a lot of the day-to-day -day runnings of the organization, certainly involved in the propaganda it was producing, that without bin Laden, Al-Qaeda was a spent force. So where are we eight years later? Well, if you look at the analysis that's out there, a lot of people who are probably a lot smarter than me are talking a lot about Al-Qaeda 2.0 or Al-Qaeda 3.0. In actual fact, Al-Qaeda has not disappeared. It has been very active in a number of countries around the world. There are a number of affiliates or groups that align with Al-Qaeda in many, many countries that have carried out terrorist attacks since the death of bin Laden. And sort of paradoxically, with the death of al-Baghdadi, which we'll get to in a second, there are those saying that this is al-Qaeda's chance to reassert its dominance as the number one Islamist terrorist group on the planet. We'll have to wait and see if that's the case. But I think the bottom line, and this is the important thing, is that the death of bin Laden was nowhere near the final nail in the coffin of the terrorist group. Now, it is true that when bin Laden died and he was replaced by Ayman al-Zawahri, his second in command as the leader, there was a tremendous shift in the charismatic presence of a leader in the terrorist group. Let's face it, Ayman al-Zawahri couldn't organize a piss up in a bar. He does not have bin Laden's charisma. He comes across as very, very staid, very boring. Uh, I don't think he has nearly the same presence that bin Laden did. And yet even with a person who is a far second choice to lead a terrorist organization, that organization is still very active around the world. Well, and I think this underscores a really important point, which we're going to reinforce when we talk in a second about Islamic State, is that we have to be very careful in according too much importance to the effects and the influence of a leader on a terrorist organization. Some of these leaders in, do have a day-to-day -day role in directing operations, in doing recruiting, in providing inspiring messages, others less so. Boko Haram, the terrorist group Al-Qaeda affiliated in Nigeria, has a leader called Shakao who was heard from very, very infrequently. And on many occasions, it's because they think he's dead and then he comes up with a video to show, hey, I'm still here, I'm alive. And yet, if you were to say that the absence of Shakao from this public stage, if you will, has had any effect on Boko Haram, you'd be wrong. Boko Haram carries out attacks on a weekly basis in northeastern Nigeria and has actually been now making incursions into Cameroon, into Benin, and into Mali and Central African Republic, as well as Chad. So this notion that leadership has to be front and center in order for a terrorist organization to be effective is, is, is clearly wrong. And that brings us to Islamic State. There's no question that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was a very, very effective leader. He was very charismatic. He went as far as to proclaim himself a caliph and to establish the Islamic State, the new caliphate in Iraq and Syria. No other terrorist leader had done that before. So he clearly had um, the balls to do it. He had the religious background to show himself as a qualified leader. He regularly made statements to inspire his troops. 
I don't know how how effective or how involved he was in day-to-day planning. That's something I didn't really pay a lot of attention to when I worked as a terrorism analyst. But there's no question that he was an important linchpin figure in the organization. And therefore, now that he's dead, and it's been confirmed by DNA that he is in fact dead, the question now becomes who's the number two? Who's going to assume the mantle of leadership for Islamic State? And I do find this set of analysis really interesting and not all that effective, to be honest. We used to do this in the Cold War days. We used to take pictures of Soviet leaders standing on the podium in front of the Kremlin during a military parade or some kind of national event. And we'd see who was standing closer to whom and count the heads and see who was missing to try to determine if, in fact, there was a change in leadership. And at the end of the day, did it make much of a difference in terms of who the Soviet Union was and what they're capable of? I'm not a Soviet expert, but I would argue the answer is no. So I don't spend a lot of time trying to analyze the actual figure of who's going to assume the leadership of a terrorist group once the current leader is is, is done. Like I just said, al-Zawahri is no Osama bin Laden, and he can't remotely aspire to be the same, but there's no question that even as uncharismatic and bland as he is, Al-Qaeda still remains a very effective terrorist group that is carrying on operations on a regular basis in dozens of countries around the world. So what do we do about uh, Islamic State now that al-Baghdadi is dead? Well, let's just do a couple of, remind ourselves rather, of exactly where Islamic State is. What is its current strength? Where is it? Where is it strong? And we know that Islamic State still has probably 10,000 fighters or so in Iraq and Syria. There are also tens of thousands in prison in in the Kurdish-held territories and other parts uh, of Iraq and Syria. And, And this is a statistic that I found this morning, which really, really struck me as, as indicative of, of what we have to worry about when it comes to Islamic State. So we divide Islamic State or Al-Qaeda or these groups into three. Now, these are the largest and most extremist groups. These are, aren't just localized groups like Abu Sayyaf in, in uh, the Philippines or Al-Shabaab in Somalia. These large groups exist on three levels, the core, the affiliated, and the wannabes or the inspired. Case of Islamic State, there's probably around 10,000 fighters still living around in Iraq and Syria. And then there's probably tens of thousands, if not more, of people who are inspired wannabes. We had an attack in Edmonton in Canada two years ago. The trial just ended of a guy who was inspired by Islamic State. We had a woman in a Canadian tire hardware store inspired by Islamic State a couple years ago as well. But it's that middle layer I want to focus on. And this was an article I read in Foreign Policy this morning, which to me really gave me pause. This is the list of known Islamic State Wilayat. Wilayat is an Arabic word meaning provinces. We would call them affiliates in English. Here's the list of areas where Islamic State has an affiliate. You ready for this? Syria, Libya, Egypt, Algeria, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Afghanistan, Nigeria, Somalia, Pakistan, India, the Philippines, Chechnya, Mali, Niger, Chad, Cameroon, the Democratic Democratic Republic of Congo, Mozambique, and Turkey, as well as what the author claimed were undeclared affiliates in Bangladesh and Tunisia. Doesn't that group strike you as an an incredible fact? So what's that? 
upwards of 15 or 20 or so affiliates. This is a phenomenon that I did refer to in my third book, The Lesser Jihads, published in 2017. And, and what it says to me is that these groups, some of which are very, very active, the Islamic State affiliate in Afghanistan carries attacks on a weekly basis, the one in Somalia a few times a month, the one in Nigeria probably a few times a month as well. This is an organization which has successfully been able to create and inspire groups all around the world. That list of countries covers all of Africa, well, many parts of Africa, many parts of the Middle East, South Asia, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, and parts of Europe, if you want to call Turkey part of Europe. That's an incredible achievement. And the question then becomes, will these affiliates cash in their chips just because al-Baghdadi is, al is dead? And I think the answer is no. There's an independence there. There is a self-sufficiency that these groups are able to plan and carry out attacks on their own. Did they get inspiration from the leadership in, in Syria and Iraq? Probably. Can they do without that inspiration? Probably. So I think we should be very, very careful in saying that the death of al-Baghdadi will lead to somehow the rotting or the destruction of all these affiliates in, in these places around the world. Because you see, the one thing that Islamic State and Baghdadi in particular was very successful at, and, and more so than any terrorist group that, that I can think of in recent history, he was able to basically say, look, we like the fact that you see us as an inspiration, that you, you, see, you, you come to us for guidance, but we want you to do what you can, when you can, with your own resources. In other words, you don't have to come here. It'd be great if you could. And we know that upwards of 40,000 foreign fighters from countries like Canada, United States, many Western European countries, the Caribbean, etc., etc., did in fact go to join Islamic State in 2014, 2015. But for those that couldn't do it, either they were stopped by authorities, they couldn't afford it, or didn't have the wherewithal, the message that Islamic State gave them was very, very simple. And the message is what I call the Nike brand of terrorism. Just do it, referring to the Nike logo. In other words, do what you can with the resources that you have. If you have a knife, pick up a knife, go into a crowd. If you can get access to a vehicle, get in a vehicle, drive, hit somebody in the vehicle. If you've got access to a firearm, great, use a firearm. If you're able to build or acquire explosives, do that as well. In other words, use what you can to carry out attacks in the name of Islamic State. And that's exactly what happened in Edmonton in September 2017 and what happened in Scarborough, a suburb of Toronto, in the summer of 2017. These were people who saw themselves inspired by Islamic State. Now, a person with a knife, a person with, in the case of the Scarborough attack, a golf club, cannot do the same types of damage as people who've been trained by Islamic State experts in the, in the preparation of explosives, or in the use of, you know, um, very powerful firearms. But the bottom line is that these attacks can still rattle people. They may not kill hundreds, but they certainly give the message that Islamic State is still here. It's still a force to be reckoned with. In other words, the mere fact that al-Baghdadi has been killed does not mean the end of the terrorist group. Now, there's been a lot of speculation of whether or not we'll see revenge attacks planned and carried out by those who are seeking vengeance for the death of al-Baghdadi at the hands of U.S. Special Forces, maybe. As I've tried to argue in some of my comments to the media, there's probably attacks that are being planned anyway 
irrespective of whether al-Baghdadi is dead or not. Will there be new ones planned? Maybe, maybe not. I think that as we try to understand the significance of the death of al-Baghdadi going forward, while it is important to acknowledge that, yes, we have eliminated a very dangerous terrorist, a very charismatic speaker, a very influential person on the terrorism hierarchy, let's not make the mistake of overanalyzing this and saying that the death of al-Baghdadi is the most significant event to occur. It's not, because the terrorist group of Islamic State is still around. It was not defeated, as President Trump claimed it was back in April of 2019. It is still effective, whether at the core level, at the affiliate level, or at the level of the wannabes, the inspired ones that we see carrying out attacks around the world. And I fear this is going to be the case going forward. I think in the end, when we look at these types of events and we try to analyze and assess the significance of them, we have to be sober in what we say. We have to be very careful in not getting caught up with the brouhaha and the celebration over the death of a truly heinous man. And, and al-Baghdadi was a very heinous man. I've seen reports that he personally took part in rapes of young women, especially Yazidis that were kept, kept as sex slaves by Islamic State. So I'm not shedding a tear over the death of al-Baghdadi, and nor should, nor should anybody else. We have eliminated a, truly, a true son of a bitch who deserves no one's praise, deserves to be mourned by nobody. So that's a good thing. As I said, and I'll say it again, a dead terrorist is a good terrorist. But let's not over uh, or jump to the conclusions that because this man is no longer there, that the threat has somehow diminished. I don't know if it's diminished. I don't think it has. I think we'll see terrorist attacks going forward. There are many reasons that Islamic State still has support, part of which is the military occupation of Iraq and Syria by, by part of the Americans, the Russians, the Iranians. Now there's Turks in the, in the Kurdish area. Uh, the Turkish incursion into northern Syria and Iraq is going to basically feed terrorism by Kurdish separatists and, and Turkish and Kurdish terrorists in eastern Turkey. I said it before, I'll say it again. Whenever an army invades and occupies a land, it gives it gives it basically feeds a terrorist mindset. It justifies the use of violence to get these troops to leave the occupied territory. That's my two cents worth on the effectiveness of leadership and the elimination of leaders and the sort of results on the operational capacity of that terrorist group. I'd like to hear what you think about this. Is the death of Baghdadi really important? Will it have a significant effect on the ability of Islamic State to, to, to act moving forward? You can reach me by leaving comments out of this podcast, or you can reach me Gmail, borealisrisk at gmail.com, on Twitter at borealisaves, on LinkedIn, or on Facebook. I'd love to hear your feedback. So that's it for podcast number 22. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll talk to you again in a fortnight. Until that time, stay safe. It may sound absurd, but don't be naive.